Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 20. I have about three sermons today, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to work all of them into one. I know that's a scary thought, isn't it? Acts chapter 20. Let's uh, look at verse 25. We're going, to, we're going to read Acts chapter 25 through verse 32. This is the Apostle Paul, and he is getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and ultimately he will be arrested there, he will be transported to Rome, and then ultimately executed now, as Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem, Paul knows this is what's going to happen to him. He knows that he's going to be arrested because all along the way, the Holy Spirit is warning him. Men are giving him prophetic words and prophetic demonstrations that what awaits you in Jerusalem are, are chains. And so these believers were trying to talk Paul into not going But Paul was content that if that's what God had for him, then that's what was going to happen because he trusted God. And so this is the context Paul is leaving, and he is not going to see these believers again. And he knows that, and he tells them that, and this church knows this. And so think about it. Paul founded this church. He planted this church. He He invested in this church, he discipled them, he taught them, he equipped them, and now he is leaving and he will not be returning. So I want you to listen carefully to the words of warning that Paul gives to the church. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Well, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. Lord, you declare to us that your gospel is the power of God to salvation. Lord, let this word, let this gospel find entrance into our hearts, let it change us and conform us from the inside out, that we would be a people, that Christ Fellowship would be a church to bring glory to your name in this community, 
and to the ends of the earth, however you should choose. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is departing for this last time, and he wanted to assure these believers that he had proclaimed the truth, the whole counsel of God to them, and that they were now accountable to carry on the gospel mission that they were charged with. He commended them to God and to the word of his grace and spoke of their inheritance among all those who are sanctified or set apart in God. One of the things I want to talk to you about today is an inheritance. We've been given an inheritance and we are to pass down that inheritance. That's what an inheritance is. It's something that's given. It's something that's passed down. An inheritance must be established and then it must be preserved and it must be purposefully passed down. We have been given an inheritance in Christ Jesus and in the word of his grace. Paul speaks of this in the very words we just read. This is what he tells the church. You have an inheritance. I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. By his grace, we are partakers of his inheritance. But that has not happened apart from faithful men and faithful women who have stayed true to the word of God and to the commands of Christ. This inheritance that Paul speaks of, this inheritance that the Bible speaks of, is an inheritance that's passed down to those coming after us. It's passed down through the scripture, through the traditions, through the pattern of sound words and sound doctrine, through faithfulness of prior generations to uphold the scriptures and to obey the commands of Christ, We're gathered here today as followers of Jesus. It's not accidental that we're here today. It's not accidental that we're here reading the gospel, reading the scripture, and talking about the inheritance that's been given to us in Jesus. We're here talking about this today because there have been faithful men and women of prior generations who have held fast to this and they have made sure that that inheritance has been handed off and passed on. We in turn are to continue in that pattern of faithfulness to Christ and to his word of grace so that the generations to come will be discipled in that inheritance that we have in Christ and in his word. We've been given an inheritance to to pass on to those coming behind us. We're commanded to do this from generation to generation, making disciples, holding fast our confession, and contending for the faith until the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what the prophet says in the Old Testament centuries before the birth of Christ this is what the prophet declares there's coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea how much of the sea is covered by the waters all of it there's coming a day when all of the earth 
will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. This is a promise that God gives to us. It, it's kind of like the little story I read to the kids. It seems impossible right now, right? I mean, our society, our culture seems anything but godly. It is absolutely godless. And if we're not careful, if we buy into everything we see and read and hear, we're going to become pessimists who do not believe that anything good can happen. That we're spiraling down and down and down to death and destruction. But that is not the picture that the scripture gives to us. And we must not become people susceptible to that mindset because that's exactly what the world, that's exactly what Satan, that's exactly the way that the enemy wants you to believe. That's exactly the way the enemy wants you to view the world and the earth around you. The gospel is called gospel for a reason. Gospel means good news. It doesn't mean bad news. It means good news. But we seem very often, it seems in the church, that we are more conscious of bad news than we are the good news. And we let bad news shade our thinking, shade our vision. We let bad news condition us and how we live and how we act and what we do instead of allowing the good news to shape us. The Bible is clear. It is the good news that should shape our lives, not the bad news. So we've been given an inheritance to pass on to those that are coming behind us, but this will not happen by accident. We must be purposeful in how we prepare to pass along the faith and the inheritance that we have in Christ. Now the Bible also gives us the metaphor of running a race. Paul talks about running our race. We're running a race, and it is a relay. You ever, have you ever run a relay race? Like watching the Olympics? Remember the Olympics? We just watch those. And they had relay races in the Summer Olympics. We're not running a 100-meter dash. We're running a long-distance relay race. And we can think of it in this sense. Jesus ran the first leg and he completes the last leg and we run all the legs in between. And this is why the Bible guarantees us victory. Because Jesus started the race and he finished the race. But the Bible is really clear that we're running a race. And the leg of the race that we run is our life. And we run our race and we pass the baton off from one generation to another as they run their race. Even though our victory is secured in Jesus, we are commanded to run our leg of the race like one seeking to obtain the prize. We don't slack off because Jesus has promised that we win the race. We run as hard and as fast as we possibly can precisely because Jesus has promised us victory listen to the words of the apostle Paul 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize run in such a way that you may obtain it and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things now they do it to obtain a perishable crown but we 
We run, we race for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Or Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God he started the race he finishes the race he has guaranteed our victory but we run our leg of the race and the Bible says even though our victory is guaranteed we are to run as though we are racing for our lives to obtain the crown that's how we should run our race we should run like we want to obtain the prize in a word we run to win What we win is not perishable, but imperishable. Therefore, we are to run with certainty and a willful purpose to win and to see God's kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, that's what Jesus taught us to pray. We're running a race that's not just meters long, not just miles long, but we're running a race that spans the generations. In fact, we're running a race that could span a thousand generations. In a relay race, the handoff is critical for the successful running of the race and crucial for victory. How we live our life, how we run our race, and how we pass the faith on to others is something we should take very seriously because the Bible takes it extremely seriously and commands us to do the same. What God, what God calls us to is for us and for our children and for our children's children and on and on and on. What God calls us to is not just for us in our lifetime, but the Bible says it's for our children and our children's children. In fact, to a thousand generations. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, when Peter and the disciples come down from the upper room after having been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter comes down and he preaches a sermon. And the Bible says at the end of that sermon, there were over 3,000 people that were saved that were added to the church that day. They started with 120 or so in an upper room. They came down. Peter preaches a message. And all of a sudden, you go from 120 to over 3,000 people. And in the midst of that sermon, Peter says to them, repent. They ask him, what shall we do? After he informs them, you've crucified your Messiah. You've crucified the Lord of glory. And they said, what shall we do? And here's his answer, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Who is the promise to? It's to you. It's to your children. It's to their children. It is to all, as far off, as many as the Lord would call. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. 
Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 105, verse seven and eight. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. You notice it doesn't say that he remembers it for a few days and then forgets. He doesn't remember it for a few weeks. He doesn't even remember it for a few decades or a few centuries. He remembers it for a thousand generations. We're not running a sprint, church. We're running a long distance race that will outlast your life. And you have something to hand off, to pass on to those that are running behind you. How will Christ Fellowship Church hand off the faith to the next 40 years and beyond? How are you handing off the faith to those God has placed in your life? Parents, how are you handing off your faith to your children? As a follower of Christ, consider how you are handing off your faith to those God has placed in your life. We are all commanded to become disciples and to make disciples. Did you hear that? We are all commanded to become disciples and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. How are you seeking to become and how are you seeking to make disciples that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth? This is how the faith is passed on from the first Adam to the first disciples on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection and now to us in our day and in our time sitting in this very room. This is how the faith is passed on one day at a time, one life at a time, one generation at a time. God raises up leaders to oversee and to shepherd the church of God. So in our scripture that we read from Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul writes, therefore, or Paul says, Luke is writing, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the leaders of that church. He's talking to the pastors and the elders. And he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God calls pastors and elders to give oversight to the church for its spiritual growth and maturity according to the pattern established in Christ and in the scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We are commanded to hold fast the pattern of sound words which we have heard and to keep by the Holy Spirit in us. That good thing which was committed to us, this is a responsibility that we have to hold fast 
the pattern committed to us in faith and in love, as well as a command to set in order the things that are lacking in the church. So Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter one, verse five, and he writes this, for this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete that you shall set in order, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The pastors and elders and deacons, the older men, the older women, those spiritually mature are to set the example for those less mature. We should be purposeful in how we worship, how we live, how we speak, how we show ourselves as a pattern of good works that others can learn and grow from. In the midst of that scripture, I just read to you verse 5, but listen to the context of that verse in those first eight verses of, of uh, or in the context of that letter, starting in verse one of chapter two. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that you, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. How has the doctrine of the church, how has the doctrine of the scripture been corrupted to the point that we are ordaining openly gay, practicing homosexuals into the ministry? How has that happened? Because the doctrine has been corrupted because men have failed to pass on the faith. Men have failed to hold fast the pattern of sound words and they have failed to pass that pattern on to the successive generations. And now corruption has crept into the church. We shouldn't be amazed at the world. We should be alarmed that the church is embracing what the world is promoting. That now we can say to a little boy or a little girl, and parents are doing this all over the place, and school systems and government systems are enforcing this reality that any person, young or old, can decide today what they want to be, a boy or a girl. I can identify to be whatever I want. In the conference we just came back from, the man from Canada spoke of a gentleman who is in his 70s who was adopted by another elderly couple and he is living in their home as a six-year-old little girl. And the government protects him and no one can speak against it or you will be fined and punished by the government of Canada. And every little boy and every little girl and every old man and every old woman has the right to identify and be whatever they choose to be. And no one, especially the pastors, can say any different unless you want to feel the force of the government come down upon you. 
that in the city of Toronto, which was known historically as the city of churches. It is not anymore. And you say, well, Pastor Jeff, that's an extreme example. It may be. And certainly that could never happen in America. You better wake up. You better smell the coffee. You better open your eyes and realize what's happening right now in our nation. Because it's happening. Corruptibility, corruption has come in because we have failed to pass on to the successive generations the pattern of sound words and sound doctrine. Discipleship is purposeful growth. Growing elders is focused work. Every believer is called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So if you are here today and you count yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are commanded by God to make disciples. You are commanded by God to do the work of the ministry. I am commanded by God as your pastor to equip you for that work. But the work of the ministry is not just done by the pastor. It's not just done by the elders. It is to be done by the saints. This is Paul's point in, in Ephesians 4.11. He says, Jesus gave to the church these gifts. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, until we come to the fullness of faith. The unity of the faith, the fullness, the full stature of a man, Jesus Christ. Well, we're, we're not close to that right now. But God gave those gifts to the church through Jesus Christ, and that equipping process is still taking place right now. That's why we gather on Sunday. That's why we preach and teach. It's why we do what we do. This is for your equipping so that you can go back out into the world and you can make disciples. Not everyone is called to be an elder or a pastor. Everyone is called to the work of the ministry. Everyone is called to be a disciple in Jesus Christ. Not everyone is called to be an elder or a pastor, but some are. And those men who desire to serve the church in the office of elder must also feel the call of God to do so. The calling of elder will not only require purposeful growth, but focused work to become equipped for the hard and dirty but essential work of serving and overseeing the flock of God, one must be committed to hard and focused work. The church of Jesus Christ and Christ Fellowship Church in particular needs qualified, committed, and godly elders serving as overseers of the flock of God. So I'm calling upon the men of Christ Fellowship Church to seriously pray and to ask if God might be calling you to serve in this congregation in that capacity. I'm calling you to seriously pray and to seek if God has put that desire in your heart, even though it may be accompanied by fear. And I pray to God it is accompanied by much fear. It should scare you to think about being an elder or a pastor. No one should take that lightly. It's a calling from God, but it is a necessary calling. It is how we have all come to be where we are today. Men have taken that burden on, and they have served the church of God, and they've served the mission of God through that capacity. 
It's what God set up. It's what God ordained. It's what God established. Be relieved to know that not all men are called to this office. And that does not mean that you're not a leader. It doesn't mean you're not a candidate for continued growth. It doesn't mean that you're somehow less spiritual than another. That is not true at all. God does not love elders or pastors more than he loves others. Elders and pastors aren't closer to God by virtue of their office or particular calling. To be an elder is just that. It's a particular calling to a particular office. It's not supposed to be for everyone. God, just like everyone's not supposed to be a plumber. Not everyone's supposed to be a mechanic. Not everyone's supposed to be a lawyer. Not everyone's supposed to be, you know, an electrician. Whatever. But some people are. God makes each one as he wills and he puts them in the place where they are created to best serve the body. Each of us should seek to function in the place God has ordained for us. The place we were created and equipped to function in. And if you think God may be calling you to take a more committed role in Christ Fellowship Church, even the desire to serve the congregation as an elder some future day, I'm asking you to step up so that we might begin that journey of discovery. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, an elder, an overseer, he desires a good work. The calling of a bishop or an overseer. Don't, don't listen, don't get confused. You're not going to walk around with a pin on your lapel that says bishop or elder. This is not something to, to stoke your ego about. This is a serious calling that God puts on the hearts of some men. It's a good work to desire but desire is not sufficient. One must meet the qualifications of the scripture. And those qualifications are recorded for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'm not going to read those to you now, but I would encourage you to take note of those and reference them and pray on them and see if this is something God may put on your heart, O man of God. And if you do not feel called to that specific work, there is more work to be done, and the church needs men and women who are seeking to grow and to mature spiritually in order to be used by God to effect the transformation that we so desperately need in our culture. Planning for growth leads to healthy fruitfulness you realize that growth can happen planned and unplanned. We're living in a city that is the epitome of that reality. We didn't plan for growth for decades in Taylor. Now all of a sudden, growth has been thrust upon us and we can't fix roads fast enough. We can't build roads fast enough. We can't install sewer lines fast enough, water lines fast enough. We're so far behind the curve that it just is a huge mess you know how that happened? Because we had a city that never planned for growth. Whether they didn't want growth, whether they didn't think growth would ever come, it doesn't really matter. Growth happened. So growth doesn't just happen when you plan for it. We know that with our kids, right? Our kids are going to grow. 
The question is, how are they going to grow? What are they going to grow into? And, and what's going to shape their minds? Because something's going to shape their minds. Parents, if you don't shape their minds, someone will. If you don't direct them in how they're to grow, someone will. They're going to grow. That's not a question. The question is, how are they going to grow? And what are they going to grow into? So growth can be planned or it can be unplanned. Not all growth is positive. Not all growth is fruitful. And not all growth is glorifying to God. People can grow into bad habits, bad character, and bad lifestyles. Churches can grow into bad theologies, bad doctrines, and bad practices. We talked about cults today in Sunday school. And that's exactly how they get formed. Bad theology bad doctrines, bad practices because we weren't purposeful in how we passed on the faith. Or we can look to the scripture and the pattern established in Christ and we can grow according to the pattern of sound words which you have heard in faith and in love which are in Christ Jesus. Christ's fellowship must be purposeful to follow the pattern of sound words. The generations depend upon our commitment to be purposeful as we focus to equip the saints here at CFC for the work of the ministry and to raise up leaders as we go into the future. Our commitment to do this according to the biblical pattern will determine the longevity and the impact that we will have as a church. Christ fellowship has to be committed to this from the pulpit to the pew so that there so that we are running our race to obtain the crown and so that we do not drop the handoff to the generations running with us and after us we do this to see his kingdom come his will be done on earth as it is in heaven we must reject a consumer model for for the biblical model you realize that that is pretty much definitive of the church in America. The church in America is basically defined by a consumer model. Do you know what that means? I was a marketing major uh, when I went to college. I got my degree in marketing. And so I learned all about these things when I was in school, even though it was quite a while ago. But the foundational principles of marketing and promotion and those things, that really doesn't change. Because human nature really doesn't change. It, we're born sinful until we're born again in Christ. And we're born with sinful desires. We're born with lust of the flesh. Thing, and so we're distracted and our attention is captured very easily. And listen, Madison Avenue and Wall Street and the marketers who do this for a living and make billions upon billions of dollars with it every year understand this better than most Christians do. The typical American church is built on a consumer model. Church growth is now program-driven, focused on drawing in consumers looking for a particular product. Oh, they have great music. I think I'll go there. Oh, they have a great children's program. I think I'll go there. Oh, they've got a great youth program. I think I'll go there. Oh, they've got a program for seniors. I think I'll go there. Oh, they've got a divorce support group. I think I'll go there. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But this is typically how we grow the church in America. We're focused on drawing consumers looking for a particular product. This is now so normal in the church, we fail to see how we are actually perpetuating the very problem we're trying to solve, which is low commitment and mass exodus. Everybody is 
up in arms about the mass exodus from the church. My kids are growing up. They graduate from high school. They go to college and they don't want to go to church anymore. That is so common. Pastors tell me, do you have any young people in your church? I said, man, we've got tons of babies in our church. They're like, we don't have anyone under 65 in our church. We can't, we can't pay a young person to come to our church. We have no young people in our church. That is a very common thing for some churches. What happened? All of these people have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Where are they? And when you begin to survey them, you find out that the vast majority of them are not in church. You can read surveys that tell you approximately 40% of Americans attend church. That's not true. The more accurate surveys that have been done over the last 30 years consistently show that less than 18% of Americans on any given Sunday morning are in church. There was a recent study that, that said now regular attendance means you come to church, what is it, 18 times a year? But in reality, most people only come to church 12 times a year. That's, that's the average. The average churchgoer goes to church 12 times a year. Those are accurate numbers. That's not people who say I'm a Christian and I go to church. Those are, but that's measured from people who actually do attend church. The program-driven model of church growth is based on attracting people to the church through an array of programs. That presupposes that there are people who desire what the church is offering. So the need for more effective promotion to capture these families and individuals is constant. We're not saving the lost. We are finding the found. We're moving consumers when we are commissioned to make disciples. Once we're able to capture these consumers, it becomes the mission of the church to build brand loyalty into these customers. I'm using this language purposefully because this is the language of marketing. Brand loyalty is built by making sure customers are happy, their needs are met, they're continually exposed to new and better products or old products that have been repackaged or repurposed or improved. The goal is to do this generationally so that mom and dad and the church are raising up a new generation of brand-loyal consumers. The only problem is that is not working now in America, and we see a declining church population in our nation. Instead of America being a a missionary sending point, America has now become a missionary receiving destination. There are actually missionaries from third world countries that are coming to America because they see what's happening to the church in America and they're coming to evangelize America because they realize that it was American missionaries that went to their country and are responsible for their ability to hear and, and receive the gospel. It's the grace of God. So where did the church learn this model? Well, look around. 
And you see this model everywhere. It's become as much a part of our life as air and water. We do not even realize how much we are moved by it. You see it on television, streaming on the internet, driving down the road, listening to the radio, shopping at the stores that have captured your loyalty or at least drawn you into their doors because of that special they're running. In marketing, we call that a lost leader. They put something that they know is really popular and they put it on sale really, really cheap to get people in the store. And once they got you in the store, they know that you're going to buy something else. It's called a lost leader. It's become so pervasive in our lives that we hardly notice how much it impacts our consumption habits and our lifestyles. Now, I'm not saying that you can't grow a church this way. We've done it before here at Christ Fellowship. That was our model for many, many years. Obviously, you can. We see this church model employed all around us. There are mega churches all around that have utilized this very effectively. I'm also not saying that God does not use this model or these churches to impact people's lives. He can and he does use all sorts of means and methods to work in our lives. God can use a crooked stick stick to draw a straight line. He can use whatever model he wants to use to impact people, but that is not the model he created, even though he may use it for a time. The church model that we see in scripture is very different from what we have come to commonly see in our American big box culture of convenience. There is a place for all of that big box convenience. I like Home Depot and Lowe's and Super Walmarts and H-E-B Plus as much as anybody. But it may not be the most effective model when it comes to fulfilling the mission of God or the mission of the church. This is not about a bigger versus smaller debate. We all agree that we want, I hope you want, because I want God's church to become as large, to grow as big as possible and have as much influence as possible in our world and in our culture. We want that though to happen in the right way according to the pattern of sound words and sound doctrine with a view to the generations coming after us. We've spent the last 30 years waiting for Jesus to come back. Every decade, this is the decade. 1988, 40 years since the birth of Israel. Jesus is coming. Well, 1988 comes and goes. Oh, it was 89. Oh, 89 came and went. Well, it's going to be 98, 50 years. 98 comes and gone. It's going to be 2008, 60 years come and gone. Now we're in the 70th year. You know, generation 40 years or by strength 70. So there are people waiting for Jesus to come back this year, 2018, 70 years after the birth of Israel. Don't get mad at me when I say this. But those are people that just simply have failed to rightly divide the word of truth. And we see the church suffering because of that. Because we've been so caught up with the return of Jesus, we forgot to pass the baton to the people running the race with us. And we wonder why we're ordaining openly gay pastors. We wonder why the church supports abortion. We wonder why. We wonder why, oh why, oh why. Well, this is why. 
because we had our priorities misplaced. We had our eyes turned to the wrong thing. We had our hearts set on ourselves and our own convenience and our own escape out of this hell. When God says you ought to be doing the hard work of making disciples, spreading the kingdom, making sure my will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that my kingdom comes and it's going to come through his armies on the earth and we are the army. The church is his army. It's led by leaders, and we need men to step up and lead his armies under the captain of our host, who is Jesus. And we need to put away all of these fanciful theologies that have led to the demise of the church and go back to the Bible and start doing things according to the pattern that God's given us in his Bible. I'm sorry. Sometimes I get a little passionate about these things. The Bible is clear. God brings the increase. It's God who adds to the church. And he does it through the various means as he sees fit. But here's what we know for sure. Healthy, fruitful growth with longevity in mind cannot come through consumer Christianity or what we've commonly coined today, churchianity. We create all these cute little phrases to try to describe what's happening. Churchianity is now a phrase that you hear pollsters and church growth experts use. We've become in... in, raptured with churchianity. No, healthy, fruitful growth with longevity will only come through the biblical model and the biblical mandate of preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded, namely that we love God with all our heart and that we love one another as he has loved us and that we hold fast the pattern of sound words, that we don't compromise. The epidemic of exodus from the church when kids graduate high school and enter college is because they are consumers. And once out from under the consumer watchdogs who are their parents, they find new and more exciting things to consume their time. Their friends, their teachers, their institutions of higher learning introduce them to all sorts of product options. The church becomes less and less important and appealing if it is just another consumable. The church will never be able to compete with the world because it's not supposed to. You hear this all the time. Why can't Christians make a movie that compares to the world's movies? Why can't we make like a Star Wars movie that's really good instead of these cheesy Christian films? We've done pretty good with music. Now, we're discovering that that music has, we've abandoned the music of the church that has right theology that challenges us to be what God has commanded us to be. Do you see, there's all kinds of pitfalls with trying to match the world to make sure our consumers don't go over to another brand. Church becomes another item on the list of consumable things to do and places to go. And if it doesn't measure up to whatever consumer standard we arbitrarily set, it will no longer consume our time, our talents, or our treasure. 
If we're not purposefully discipling our children and our adults according to the biblical pattern, we may simply be creating another class of consumers with the same brand loyalty as a person has when HUB or Walmart have competing products on sale. We have constructed theologies and doctrines in our own minds, not based on the teaching of Scripture, but based on the consumer models we have formulated for ourselves to justify our lifestyles and to appease our conscience. Now in America, regular church attendance, as I said, is considered 18 times a year, on average 12 times a year, is not uncommon for those who consider themselves regular attenders. We are losing the culture because we are losing our churches. But I want to stop right there and I want to make sure you understand something. When I say we're losing the culture because we're losing the churches, I don't want you to ever think that God has lost his church because that is impossible. God can never lose his church. In fact, God has promised to build his church and he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. As God has demonstrated throughout history, he is willing to let man fail. Specifically, God is willing to let a man-centered, man-pleasing church institution come to its natural end so that he can resurrect it from the ashes of man's own effort and raise it up to be his glorious church empowered by his life. The good news of Christianity is that we serve a God of resurrection. Things die and God raises them to life. Things die again and God raises them to life. We see it over and over and over throughout the scripture. That's why you've got these pictures. That's why you see God commanding the prophet to speak to dry bones in the wilderness. These are all pictures that we're supposed to understand because they apply to us. What's going to happen to our nation if things don't change? It may fail. It may cease to exist as we know it. But do you believe in a God who's big enough to raise up his church from the ashes? You better. It looks really messy and it feels very risky when you consider all that is happening in our culture. But as messy and as dangerous as it may be, God is in control and he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will raise up leaders who will follow his pattern against the current culture. Christ Fellowship Church is committed to do our part to follow the pattern of sound words and equip the saints for the work of ministry and to raise up pastors and elders and deacons who will oversee and serve God's church and Christ Fellowship Church in particular so that we are handing off to a generation that will continue to do the same until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to come to the table. this table of grace, this table of thanksgiving, this table that reminds us that Jesus has won the race for us, not because we're fast, but because he is the perfect, spotless 
sinless, all-powerful Lamb of God and Lord of glory. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no possibility you will ever lose. I didn't say you wouldn't suffer loss. I said you will never lose. And we better learn how to distinguish between suffering loss and losing. Because we can suffer loss, but we can never lose in Jesus Christ. So Christian, as you trust in him, come to the table. Let's stand. The song we sang today, Shout to the North. The first verse says, Men of faith, rise up and sing of the great and glorious King. You are strong when you feel weak. In your brokenness, complete. Verse 2 says, Rise up, women of the truth. Stand and sing to broken hearts who can know the healing power of our awesome King of love. And then the third verse says, Rise up, church, with broken wings. Fill this place with songs again of our God who reigns on high. By his grace again will fly. There is no doubt the church has broken wings in many ways, but there is also no doubt that God will raise her up and she will once again fly. The question before us today is what part will you and what part will I play in that healing and in that rising and in that flying of the church? There has been a called issue, a call by God, a call by the leadership here for spiritual men and women to stand up, to rise up. Spiritual growth and spiritual maturity will not happen by accident. It must be on purpose. We are to be purposeful in the things that we have eternal, in the things that have eternal value and eternal consequence. At a minimum, we should be as committed to the mission of God and the mission of His church as we are to any other thing in our life that consumes our time, our talent, and our treasure. If we count ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, this is the charge we have from God. The time is now. The Scripture says that. Will you rise up? And shout with your voice and shout with your life that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. I pray you will. I leave that question with you today. Let's sing our thanks to God.